Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview on 91.5 FM KSUA, and thanks for listening. What is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, all our listeners out there, uh, thank you once again for tuning in to join the conversation. We are on KSUA 91.5 FM here at UAF at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, our college radio station, and we have another special guest joining us. A professor here at UAF, uh, Dr. Krista Mulder. Thank you, Professor, for being on the program. Nice to be here, George. Yes, ma'am. And Professor Mulder is a uh, professor of plant ecology. So we are going to do a deep dive into the birch tree line uh, and tundra. We are going to talk about beavers. We're going to talk about the porcupine caribou herd and um, how that all relates to uh, plant ecology. So in uh, the frame and context of climate change and just looking at Alaska, let's let's do a cannonball right in. The permafrost is melting and that's bad. What do we do, doctor? Well, it's, um, it is thawing. Um, permafrost people get very upset if you say melt rather than thaw, because it's kind of like, um, it's, it's, not, um, it's not all water, but yes, the permafrost is thawing and that has all sorts of interesting consequences because it means um, that there are parts that are now, where there used to be a layer of solid material that are now collapsing and um, forming sort of holes and lakes. There's other parts where that water is actually draining away depending on the topography. Um, I mean, it's not an area that I'm an expert in, so you know I can't tell you that much about it, but it does have huge um, impacts on the vegetation, um, the species that can grow um, in, the, in the particular areas. And uh, you're uh, definitely published, uh, you, the Google Scholar has you uh, pages and pages of uh, some of the stuff you've written up. Um, the most cited one was the plant diversity and productivity experiments in the Euro grasslands is your most cited uh, yes. article. Yes, that was a long time ago. That it, it wasn't yesterday, but... Um, can maybe speak about a, one of the phenomenons that is happening is we are losing the tundra 
and the tree line is getting closer and closer to Barrow, let's just say for uh, Joe Sixpack and uh, people that aren't uh, as immersed in this as us, um, the tree line's moving north. What is that means it's because of the global warming? Yeah, so what's happening is that um, trees, and, and by trees we really mean shrubs, we're not really talking about things like birches, we're really talking about things like willows and alders. So these are kind of like the weedier version of the trees when we're talking about shrubs. And so they're moving north as it's getting warmer, and you know they have it's it's funny vegetation has its impacts on the environment environment doesn't just affect the vegetation so when the willows or the alders move up they do a whole bunch of things um, for one thing they tend to catch a lot more snow and when you get more snow now you're insulating the ground and it's a little bit warmer underneath and now you get some more nutrients um, and now some more things can grow um, and the other thing that they're doing is they're changing the albedo. So uh, when all the vegetation is really short, um, all the plants actually kind of bend down. Um, one of my colleagues does wonderful work on that, but the vegetation bends down, it's covered by snow and it's just white, right? And all the, and all the heat, all the light is reflected. Um, and so there's not very much heat absorption, but when you change that environment to shrubs, now you've got a darker surface and now it absorbs more heat. And so you get sort of a, um, what's called a positive feedback loop where things are speeding up and you get more shrubs because there's more nutrients and it's a little bit warmer. Um, and so uh, you get shrub expansion, both north and sometimes up mountains as well. So that's kind of interesting. That's a hard concept to get your mind around. It's almost counterintuitive that the snow actually insulates the ground and keeps it warmer. So yeah. That and let's that's let's, a huge deal up here, absolutely huge deal because you would think the snow would actually make the ground cold because it's snow. No, because the snow is not all, I mean, the snow is, of course, cold at the top near the air temperature, but it's the air temperature that's really cold. The ground below is, it's below freezing, but it's not at 40 below. So, for example, in the Fairbanks area, if you stick a little, a little a thermocouple, a little thermometer, essentially, at the base of the snow, it'll go down to about, oh, uh, minus 10 Celsius. That's about, I don't know, plus 10 Fahrenheit or something like that. Whereas if you have the same thermometer above the ground, it might go down to minus 40 Celsius, which is also minus 40 Fahrenheit. And so that snow is hugely important. So one of the things that we worry about, and in fact, I have a grad student working on it right now, she was just digging out a snow pit yesterday, is that when that, um, if that snow melts, early, it's going to expose the ground and the plants and also actually the insects that might be in the ground are actually going to be exposed to colder air temperatures. Um, so if there's actually less snow, that's a bad thing that it actually makes it colder. Um, the flip side is also true. If you get a lot more snow, it can insulate the ground further um, and actually protect all of those really vulnerable parts of the plant, which tend to be the young uh, leaf and flower buds. So let's say uh, parlay this into your expertise, but uh, one of the fun things about studying climate change is there is some kind of like quasi-science Hollywood stuff, like for example, the mammophant. The mammophant is the uh, DNA of a mammoth 
put into a African elephant. And this, I did a whole report on this. Um, and I, I, I did a huge deep dive on it. Um, it, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, uh, two sons, and we have gone mammophant crazy for weeks now. <laughs> but this was my first uh, foray into how it, these animals, the mammoths, and what would be the Jurassic Park-created mammophant, how they combat climate change. They would actually compact the snow down, therefore making the ground colder. They turn the snow into non-insulation. Is that part of it? Right, but that doesn't change the air temperature at all. So I, I mean, I don't think that has, it doesn't affect, it doesn't affect climate change in any kind of direct way and it might have negative impacts um, on the vegetation. So one of the things happens if you take an organism that doesn't normally live somewhere and you put it there, it always has all sorts of unexpected consequences um, that you might not think about. Um, so in, in, as a way of combating climate change, um, I don't think that would necessarily be a, a very um, effective way of doing that. that. That shouldn't be, we shouldn't put all our eggs in that basket and use that as the no. tip of the spear. No, no, not only that, there's all sorts of issues with, um, I would imagine these animals might be quite destructive and rip trees out and lower productivity in that way and do various other things. Um, you know, I mean, when you think back to the days when there were mammoths in um, interior Alaska, for example, those were also days when you had um, grasslands, entirely different kind of vegetation. Um, it's actually the kind of vegetation you see on very sort of steep south-facing slopes. Like if you were to take a boat along the Tanner River, which is in interior Alaska, and you look up on the slope, you'll see this, this vegetation that's kind of grassy with a bunch of roses and even a little bit of juniper and some of those other sort of drier plants thrown in there. And that's kind of um, what people imagine the steppe vegetation probably looked like back in the day. And that may be where Fairbanks ends up again. We don't know, depending on how much the precipitation and how much the temperature changes. One of, one of the challenging things with climate change is we've got a really good sense of what's happening with, with temperature, right? The models, doesn't matter who's, who you ask, but the, all the models pretty much say the same thing it's a lot harder to know what's gonna happen with precipitation, um, both because um, people, it's, it's a lot harder to model. I don't know why that is, I'm not a meteorologist, but it's just harder to get a good handle on it. And it also matters very much exactly when it falls. If it falls uh, below freezing, it's gonna do something completely different than if it falls above freezing, uh, when the snow melts, um, and how the water moves through the system, all that's totally changed. So it's really hard to say what's going to happen. But one of the possible scenarios is that we go to back to kind of like a grassland kind of vegetation um, in interior Alaska if the trees um, have difficulties. And, and, and each tree species has difficulties for different reasons. Well, that was some of the stuff that was coming up with the mammophant, that these uh, animals and mammoths, you know, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, they would knock down the trees and they would create more tundra. Like they were the, the at the tree line, they were the, the fighting uh, front lines, you know, gorillas, uh, so to speak, that were knocking down the trees. Is there like a fight between the tree line and the tundra, like uh, up around? Yeah, so tree line and tundra and, and, and grassland are three different things. So, so tundra is dominated actually by shrubs very often. They're just very short shrubs, like dwarf willows. They're like willows and 
um, little uh, um, birches that are like 20, 20 centimeters, like, I don't know, what, 10 but inches they can't or something like that. Because of the weather. They, that, that's just their growth form. And okay. part of the reason they probably grow so short is that that way in the winter, they're covered by snow and they're protected, like I said. Uh, from extreme cold. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I teach an, uh, an introductory bio class and just we had a guest lecturer, one of my colleagues, Tony Brethart, who talked about how Arctic plants in the winter actually are bendier. At the colder it gets, the bendier they get so that they get stuck underneath the snow, which is where they want to be because that's that way all of those, those tender little buds at the ends of the little branches are protected from those extremely cold temperatures and also from wind mm -hmm. um, underneath the snow. So that's tundra. Um, tundra also has a lot of mosses and a lot of lichens. It's entirely different from the kind of grasslands that the uh, mammoth, the mammoth steppe is an entirely different kind of vegetation. It, probably more similar to kind of Mongolian grasslands or something like that, really dry, uh, very cold in winter, very warm in summer, that was an environment. But the main difference between that and the boreal forest we have now has to do with precipitation. Um, so then uh, just looking at, uh, I know you've studied the invasive plant species in Alaska and uh, we're doing a, you know, like a story and uh, some stuff over at the Georgelson Botanical Gardens, but that started out as like an experiment station. I mean, in the olden mm -hmm. days, it was a, you know, let's say, uh, uh, who, who can we say, the Charles Fairbanks or, uh, when they first, the people first came up there that weren't the Alaska natives, they didn't know if anything could grow. So the the experiment stations that was they, to start off to see who could grow the biggest uh, head of cabbage, or how does that work? I don't know enough about the history. Um, I do know that their goal was to grow plants that did particularly well. Um, up in the far north. And, you know, these are things like barley uh, that traditionally people have grown in places like Sweden, um, uh, you know, and the whole community of Delta Junction, which is not that fair from Fairbanks, ha it has um, a lot of descendants from, oh, you no know, countries like the Ukraine and Russia and other um, um, parts of the East that are cold um, and where people grow uh, have a history of growing plants that do well in those extreme conditions. Um, but one of the things they also did was they were also trying to find out different kinds of feed. Um, and so they brought in, um, in things like sweet clover to see if that would be a good feed for animals. And it turns out that uh, that was not a great, so, so people bring in uh, legumes uh, like sweet clover because uh, those plants have associations with bacteria that fix nitrogen. And so they have a lot of nitrogen. So if you're a vegetarian, you know that you should eat, you know, beans, for example, and peas because they have a lot of protein. Protein has a lot of nitrogen in it. Um, and that's because those plants have special relationships with bacteria. So they tried this with a bunch of different um, uh, legume species like uh, sweet pea. Um, I think they might've tried clover as well. And um, it turned out that they weren't great for animals because animals actually got quite sick on them. Um, but they turned out to be quite good at growing in, in, well, actually this was mostly near Palmer, I think not so much interior Alaska. So a little bit further south, but it turned out that they were really pretty good at taking over roadsides and expanding everywhere. Like fireweed. 
like fireweed. Yes, same habitat as fireweed. Places that are really disturbed where there's a lot of, you know, um, just movements. Um, and so, yeah, sweet clover is growing now in many places where fireweed used to be. So what are the other invasive species uh, of plants that have come up to Alaska because of, uh, we'll call it European settlers? Well, there's, there's hundreds of them, and there's actually an entire database of them. The, the um, a place in, I, at the University of Alaska, Anchorage, maintains a whole database. And my colleague, Matt Carlson, is deeply involved with, with that. Um, one of the other ones, there, there's some that are more concerning than others. Um, Siberian pea, which is a popular um, plants to uh, plants um, as a hedge, because there aren't very many hedge forming plants up here, um, is one that's gone a little uh, wild. One that's a huge problem is chokecherry. This is a prunus um, species. Chokecherry is actually a beautiful ornamental plant. It has these, you know, really pretty white flowers. It attracts lots of pollinators. It makes these nice looking little fruits, in this case, the black ones. Um, very attractive to birds. Birds bring them all over the place, but unfortunately it's also um, very good at taking over. It's good at growing in understory and kicking out the plants that belong there. So uh, in the Anchorage Bowl area, you will see whole big areas that are you know, covered with choke cherries. And in interior Alaska, it's starting to really expand. A lot of people grew them in the gardens because they're beautiful and they attract a lot of um, you know, insects. Uh, they're also poisonous to young moose, uh, I think mostly in the spring when they concentrate a lot of chemicals in their young leaves. So you occasionally find uh, dead, dead young moose that ate too much choke cherry tree. Oh, so then uh, we were in Denali uh, last summer and uh, did like the full bus tour all the way to the outlook and back. And uh, the, the tour guide was saying that the entire uh, you know, biological, uh, all of Denali is going to change because of this uh, beetle that's coming. Now, what, what beetle is that that they're talking about? Well, I guess I'm, I'm not sure for sure what he was talking about. It could be spruce bark beetle, which has devastated, right. yeah, which has devastated parts of like, say, the Kenai Peninsula. It's, um, mm -hmm. So the, re the reason that climate change um, can affect um, insect infestations is that um, the temperature somewhere determines how quickly an insect can develop. And so in some places, for example, insects that uh, used to just have one life cycle in a year now have two life cycles in a year. So they produce twice as many, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that is interesting, I think it's spruce bark beetle where, you know, that essentially the presence of one attracts more others and they sort of just attack a tree to the point where its defenses are overwhelmed. Um, and the spruce, spruce um, like a lot of, like a lot of gymnosperms defend themselves, a lot of conifers defend themselves by sending out, you know, this, this, these resins, this pitch, you know, if you ever get that in your hair, you'll know that you need scissors to cut that back out. It's horrible stuff. So you that over put yeah. butter on it and then put your head in the freezer. You, you it, it's over. No, it's 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 horrible. But of course, it's a plant defense. The problem is problem is that a plant can only produce so much of it, um, and so yeah, they can get rid of a lot of insects. But they're right, eventually overwhelmed, and then the trees die back, and then the understory plants, of course, have a chance to grow up. So they devastated a lot of forest on the Kenai Peninsula. I'm not aware that they're a problem in Denali, um, but I, I could easily imagine that they would be. 
um, they and um, various other species of insects have been uh, real problems in interior Alaska as well, where they're causing problems um, for, for tree species. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's a combination of the insects and the conditions. So um, for example, the aspen trees in interior Alaska are, um, have had really big infestations for years now of something called aspen leaf miner. It's a teeny little insect that just lives in actually in the epidermal layer, on the very outer layer on either side of the leaf. Um, and it's especially problematic for plants um, that are also suffering from drought. If, they're, if they've got plenty of water, they're okay with it. Um, but these insects make it hard for them to control how much water the leaves lose. And so if it's really, really, if it's also dry or hot, uh, the plants lose too much water and they either don't grow or they just die. Is the largest living plant a grove of aspens in Colorado? Isn't there something like that where it, it, is that is that factually accurate? I don't know if it's the largest grove of plants, but I could imagine it would be because plant because aspen are clonal. So what you see above ground that look like separate trees, they're actually connected yeah. um, below ground. Um, so with below ground stems essentially um, or roots, but mostly stems so they're so you know when you look on a hillside in the fall you'll see patches whole patches like change um, instantly essentially in this, the same few hours change color or leaf out at the same time that's because they're one and the same individual that is so fascinating um they so i mean they as they say you know everything's interconnected so truly those trees are interconnected they're like yes. uh, they're the same they're they're clonal yep. so you also um, have something called the Mulder Lab, which is uh, how plants, you teach about how plants interact with each other, with the environment, with animals um, that uh, consume and pollinate them. Um, mm -hmm. Just looking at the herbivores, you know, up north, um, the muskox. My, my kids love mm -hmm. the muskox up at the uh, large animal research station. I think, the, I think the plane's landing. They're, they're, yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Let them uh, open up runway three. But uh, on uh, the Mulder Lab, like it, what age kids are, is this uh, like sixth graders? I mean, you're, you're changing the world with uh, what you're doing. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, the Mulder Lab itself is just my, my own research lab at the university. But um, I do also, I'm also involved in a lot of programs for kids. Um, so I, I used to um, be the director for the Alaska Summer Research Academy, which, you know, wasn't me teaching so much as lots of different people teaching about science. Um, I also run a program for kids who are in foster care called Fostering Science, and we have camps um, that are, uh, we have a week-long camp that's out at Bonanza Creek on the Bonanza Creek Bluff, uh, where kids who are in um, care of the state, so kids who are in foster care, um, come out and we spend a week just you know, doing really fun science stuff. We call it the science adventure camp. So that's the kind of place where they learn about things like, you know, aspen leaf miner and trees being connected and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. Um, and we also actually now have camps for them in Denali. So, yeah, so I do have my hands in a lot of educational um, pies as well. And then just uh, keeping it in the climate change uh, frame and lens, uh, there's a thing where planting bamboo or uh, having bamboo be part of the 
the uh, war on climate change can create like a sink. It's a carbon capturing mm -hmm. uh, plant because it grows so fast. It, like it grows almost as fast as kelp. And yep. once it captures the carbon and grows, you can cut it down and freeze it or put it in the ground and hope it becomes permafrost. Why isn't there more uh, of a campaign to just grow bamboo everywhere? Well, I mean, growing bamboo is great for, for carbon capture. You're right on that. Anything that grows fast, really. I mean, um, <laughs> many of those invasive plants are sort of the same thing. All, so all plants do this, right? When you have biomass in a plant, all of that is carbon or is based mostly on carbon that was taken from the air and is now on a plant. So every single plant does this. Plants are little miracles. They simultaneously manage to get energy for everybody else on the planet and carbon for everybody else on the planet, which is, you know, they're, they're amazing. Plants in any photosynthetic organism like algae, phytoplankton. Um, so all plants do this. Bamboo is particularly good because it grows so fast. And so you can cut it down and it grows right back. But of course, if you were to plant bamboo anywhere, first of all, it wouldn't grow everywhere um, and because it does need certain conditions, just like every other plant. But secondly, it would create, you know, a monoculture of bamboo, which uh, means that, you know, most of the animals and probably the bacteria and fungi that were growing there, were living there, can no longer live there. So, you know, a whole planet covered with bamboo would be um, a good thing for other environmental reasons. So what other uh, kind of natural ways are there in the plant community to fight climate change? Like what can uh, Joe Sixpack and the average guy walking down the street do to, you know, combat the basically the biggest issue we've been facing ever as humanity? Well, there are a whole bunch of things. So one of the things is think of in urban areas, all the spaces that are open, parking lots, but also roofs of buildings, right? So um, having um, uh, plants on top of buildings, having green roofs is a wonderful way. It's for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, part of it is just carbon capture, but also it cools the buildings. And so people don't need as much air conditioning in the summer. So people use less energy. Um, in the Netherlands, there are places where they're uh, putting little green roofs on top of every single bus station. Now, of course, the Netherlands has a bus station. The U.S. does not have as many bus stations. But, you know, you're equivalent of that parking lots or whatever you want. So, you know, if you're putting if you're if you're taking a lot of that urban area and reclaiming it and you can do that without taking space away from people in many cases, um, that will do a lot. It also helps with things like. Um, reducing uh, runoff, um, you know, stormwater issues, all those kinds of things. So there's all sorts of good reasons to have lots of plants growing in urban areas. Also, it's um, for mental reasons. There have been lots of studies that have shown that people are mentally and physically in better shape when they are surrounded by green. And uh, that works even in, you know, downtown LA or wherever. Um, so that's one thing that people can do uh, to really, if, if they want to do something with plants. Um, plants, any plant is a car, is it fixes carbon. Uh, so that's, like I said, that's just a miracle, but it's not just plants. I mean, algae can do it too. So I know there's a lot of efforts, for example, to have um, other things that grow really fast and fix carbon fast, like algae, cyanobacteria to capture carbon. Now, you also wrote about uh, the impacts of predators uh, in seabird-dominated island ecosystems. 
Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, literature on uh, the the predation of seabirds and rats. Um, is that is that an invasive species just in the animal kingdom? Like uh, the the rats that aren't supposed to be there are now messing yes. up the seabirds that have been there the whole time. Yeah. So there is a long, long history of rats being brought all over the world. Um, this includes um, uh, so early on on the ship. Uh, on ships, yes. So early on, actually, in New Zealand, there were no mammals other than no terrestrial mammals other than bats up until about 800 years ago. So before the first Polynesians arrived, when the first Polynesians arrived, they brought along with them this little rats, the Polynesian rat, which they call the Kiori, which is still considered part of the heritage in some groups and not others. Um, and that rat killed off a bunch of um, birds, insects, uh, reptiles that it could get to. Um, and then the Europeans in the 1800s brought two more species of rats. They brought the ship rats and the Norwegian rat. And both of those, they didn't just bring to New Zealand. They distributed them all over the planet. Um, and those rats... Uh, one of them is really good climbing trees and the other one is really good at swimming. So the birds uh, that had been protected because they did nest in the trees, a lot of them nested on the ground because why wouldn't they? Um, nobody to eat them. So those got killed off. And then a lot of the uh, birds that were on islands, uh, left over on islands when the ship rats arrived, also got killed off. So um, yeah, they're an invasive species, um, mice as well. Um, Luckily, the, the New Zealanders have gotten very good at eliminating them from islands. Um, all kinds of rats, mice, um, and stoats, which are like ermine, you know, short-tailed short weasels, those kinds of species. They've managed to eradicate those, and they've been doing that all over the world, including in Alaska. And then looking at uh, you were part of a group that was uh, excavating artifacts at a dig site near Quartz Lake. And that is just north of Delta Junction there. Um, and some of the interesting stuff you guys found uh, were like trade beads and stone tools. And uh, that's going back to nearly 14,000 years ago. Um, looking at the Alaska natives and how they operate with the environment as compared to, let's say, European Americans, from, from what you've seen over the years, is it that the Alaska natives just have a more of a reverence and respect for the environment? I mean, if we as a world society acted like they do, we probably wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. Well, um, there's a couple of things there. One of them is just plain old population density, right? I mean, there were never millions of people, as far as I know, living here um, in very large groups. And sometimes it's just plain number. The second thing is that um, Europeans have been here um, along with all sorts of modern equipment. I suspect it would have been a little different if Europeans had arrived from, say, um, you know, northern Scandinavia and settled here um, 2000 years ago or something like that. So I, I don't think, I mean, I, in many, many ways, Alaska Native people are of course very tightly tied to land and understand it very well and all that. Um, but it's, a, it's not as simple as just saying, I, I don't think it's as simple as just saying, it's just a, a difference in outlook. Another thing is just the difference between a um, gathering, you know, society that's, that's, um, that, uh, is um, collecting materials that has a sort of group ownership, right? It doesn't have, you know, this is my land, this is your land, this is your land, which is the European mindset. 
Um, so I know I'm going to have your problem. So, yeah. so that's 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 part of it, it. Part of it too. So for example, I know there's real uh, differences now between people who hunt caribou versus people who herd reindeer, which is something that was brought mm -hmm. in, you know, much later. Those have two very different mindsets about how you see the land and how you see the extent to which you have to protect it for everybody versus, you know, what you get for yourself, which is what you get when you have private property. Um, this is way outside of my bailiwick though. I have to say, I was not actually involved in that Quartz Lake stuff. Maybe just some students in the camp I was running, but um, so this is really, I am absolutely not the experts on this. And, and there are other people you could talk to who would know a lot more. Well, let's let's uh, shift gears and go back to what you are an expert on and uh, talk about pollinators. I took a beekeeping class and I have been fascinated with bees for years now. Uh, I'm on the bee pollen. I take it every morning. Um, you know, I, I watch them. Uh, how important is the bee to uh, the world? I mean, besides the earthworm, the bee is probably the second most important living organism for the continuation of life, wouldn't you say? Well, there's lots of species of bees. It's not one bee. And in many parts of the world, it's not honeybees that are important. So for example, uh, in Alaska, honeybees are uh, not important at, really at all. In fact, they don't uh -huh. even survive up here. Uh, instead, we have a huge variety of native bees. And a lot of people don't recognize those necessarily. So when you think of bumblebees, bumblebees are big and buzzy and people are like, oh yeah, there's a bee. But we also have a lot of bees that really look like flies. In fact, the flies mimic the bees. So they're hard to tell apart. They're these little native bees. They're quite tiny and they are the main pollinators. Um, the thing, one of the things about them is they're not colonial nesters. So unlike honeybees that are in groups, you know, usually in a hive or um, in the you know, in ground or like a, a wasp that has a nest in the ground or a nest in the tree. A lot of these bees are what they call solitary bees. So they're not in hives. They're burying in the ground or in tree bark or in something like that living there, but they're not in huge groups. Um, and those are the main pollinators um, here and, and in, in other parts of the world, but in the North in particular. Um, it, bee diversity is a funny thing. Most things become less diverse as you go further North. Um, bees actually become more diverse. So these are like lone bees, like lone wolves, like they're not, yeah. a, a, and do they do anything with honey at all? Or they're just, uh, nope, they don't make, they're, they're, um, they, they, put, they um, collect pollen and they bring pollen back, but they don't produce those massive amounts of honey that you see with a honeybee. Are they just as busy? You know, they say busy as a bee. Like, uh, oh, they're, they're busy. As hard as the uh, the collective bee, the ones that work together. They are. Um, they are extremely busy. Um, they, you know, they they fly from flower to flower. And the thing is, um, up here, a lot of the plants, the flowers are not very big. They don't have very large rewards, so they produce maybe a very small amount of nectar, um, and they produce a small amount of pollen. And so for some bees like bumblebees, the larger bees, uh, that might not be enough, but that's a great reward for a small bee or a fly. And then Dr. Mulder, uh, I only have you for a couple more minutes. I did wanna ask you, um, I, I ask this about all the guests, wherever they are. Um, where, where you're at in Fairbanks, it, have you noticed climate change? Like you uh, actually see it? uh from like 10 years ago or 20 years ago i mean uh, 
there's a, a indications that it's happening right here and now. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's definitely, it's happening. <laughs> it's been happening for a while. So um, I think the first time I came to Alaska was in 1991. So about, you know, 30 years ago or so um, over the past, over the past 30 years or so, the growing season has really lengthened. So the springs mm-hmm. have come earlier, the falls, the falls are actually more variable rather than, than later. And you don't get those super cold temperatures anymore. Now it's always a little bit difficult because in big parts of the world, there are temperature oscillations that are decadal. So you'll get, you know, several really warm years, several year cold years, and those swings. So you can't just look at a 10 year time period and say, oh, it got hotter. Oh, it got colder. It must be climate change because those are on top of the pattern. So you kind of have to take those out. Um, But if you see through several of those swings, so over a 30 year period that things have really changed on average, then you can start to say, yes, it has really changed. Um, And so that's what we found. The, The biggest differences here have been we don't get those, you know, those week-long minus 40s have become really uncommon. Winters have gotten much warmer, especially November, December. And then the other thing is that spring has started coming earlier. So those are the main differences that I have personally observed, but also from the data that I've looked at. We've had about a, about a 20% increase in the length of the growing season, if you think of the time period when it's reliably above freezing which Amazing. is what plants care about. So yeah, no, that it's been happening. It's not, it's coming. It's here. It's been here. <laughs> it, it was here yesterday. It got here yesterday. It was, yes. it was here. It started becoming very obvious, you know, sort when of 20, Jimmy Carter, 20 years ago. Yes. Well, uh, Dr. Krista Mulder, I appreciate your time. UAF professor uh, at our school. Um, you have been uh, enlightening on the uh plant ecology aspect of global warming and climate change. Um, you certainly sorted some stuff out uh, for me with the mammophant, uh, which uh, is, 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 is quite fascinating. It's Jurassic Park come true. But uh, everyone, you guys have been listening to KSUA 91.5 FM, our college radio station um, here at UAF. And uh, Krista Mulder, Professor Mulder, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Have a nice afternoon. You too. Okay, bye. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.